Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Bob and Yurt Live. I'm the pastor of Denver Bible Church. You've heard the awesome interview we had with Dr. Leighton Flowers, who's known for correcting the error that God has decreed everything that has ever happened, including all the confusion. The Bible says God is not the author of confusion and all the sin, all the wickedness. And he has allegedly done all that for his glory and for his pleasure. So what a fabulous interview we had. And now, what an honor. Dr. Flowers is a professor at Trinity Theological Seminary. He's the director of evangelism and apologetics for Texas Baptist. He's been a leader, a longtime leader with youth evangelism and with the worldwide movement See You at the Pole. So it's an honor to have Dr. Leighton Flowers back again. Hello, Dr. Flowers. Hello, Bob. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, I had asked if you could share with us how you came out of Calvinism. So if we could begin there after what an interview. Thank you for all that we yeah. covered in that previous radio broadcast. How? What type of a Calvinist were you since there are such a range that you mentioned last time. There's Tulip, you know, one-point Calvinist, five-point Calvinist, everything, not a maverick molecule in the universe. What kind of a Calvinist, Dr. Leighton Flowers, were you? Well, I, I was converted into Calvinism reading uh, John MacArthur, and then and then later became a fan of R.C. Sproul's book, Chosen by God, uh, and, then, and then later Piper. Uh, and so I, I followed their teachings. I didn't find anything di- I disagreed with them with regard to Calvinism, so that can kind of maybe give you the camp that I was in, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, I, I was pretty high Calvinist in the sense that I, I did affirm all five points of Calvinism. Um, I, I probably didn't have all the logical implications figured out. I hadn't really philosophically studied uh, the implications of Calvinism uh, to any level, but more just theologically believe that's what Romans 9 was teaching, that's what Ephesians 1 was teaching, and those kinds of things. And so I held to it out of, of necessity of being a Bible person. Mm. Uh, Calvinists tend to be you know, big on the Bible, and they want to they teach what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if that's what you believe the Bible teaches, then by golly, you're going to stand up for it, even if it's a little hard uh, to swallow. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's really where I was. So then the journey coming out of it, was it quick or laborious? <laughs> Well, it was it was a long process. Um, I had been a debater in high school and in college, and one of the things they really drilled into us in debate was to be able to take both sides of an issue. Uh, and I learned in that process uh, in my debate years that it really strengthened how you did debate and understanding the other perspective. Um, and, of course, usually when you're taking the other side, you don't expect to be won over by that other side. But that's kind of what happened to me. I, I took on the other side of Calvinism after reading an A.W. Tozer book, uh, because I thought A.W. Tozer was a Calvinist, because John Piper often quoted from him, and he was really smart and intelligent, and I just assumed that everybody mm. who uh, uh, John Piper quoted who was smart and intelligent had to be a Calvinist. Right. Uh, and I learned that A.W. Tozer wasn't. I learned that C.S. Lewis wasn't. 
both of men, both men who I respected greatly mm-hmm. as as a you know a theologian and, and a teacher myself. And by and the I way, Doctor Flowers, let me just interject. Yeah. C.S. Lewis is claimed by atheists to have been an evolutionist, and he had strong anti-evolutionist writings, from, even from when he was an atheist throughout his career. So just to insert that also, right. And, and it's it's sometimes it's when you you know you hear the other perspective from somebody you have respect for that at least it opens up your mind to go I wonder why they came to a different conclusion and yes. that's kind of where I was right. I was still firmly in my Calvinistic camp but it made me just go I wonder why the, you know smart people who believe the Bible would not conclude Calvinism and so that led me into about a two or three year journey of just kind of unpacking the other side and trying to objectively evaluate. Uh, the, the the non-Calvinistic position by reading from Arminius and and other leading scholars from the, the the non-Calvinistic perspective, and I began to learn real quickly that what I used to think were only two perspectives, either Arminianism or Calvinism, were the only kind of two choices. Mm. I began to realize that that that's just not the case. It's kind of the false dilemma or false dichotomy that either you're a Calvinist or you're an Arminian, and really both of those systematics I make I think I believe now make some fundamental errors that have led to a lot more confusion than help in the body of Christ. And so once I kind of stepped out of that normal debate and began to look at some other perspectives and some other uh, scholars, it really helped me to see things from a whole different perspective. Um, I use the analogy of the pictures that are called the bleaks that are both the rabbit and the duck. You know, and when you look at the picture, you can see both pictures in that image. Oh, yeah. and, I, and I think the scriptures can be that way sometimes. You're reading a passage and and one person sees it as a duck, and the other person sees it as a rabbit, and they go yelling at each other. Oh, yeah. And I think it's it's only when you can see both perspectives clearly that you really are qualified to begin to evaluate which one was in the mind of the author. Well, which one in- was the author trying to communicate? Yeah, interestingly, a local seminary here in the Denver area is Calvinistic, which I think is the default position of most of our seminaries, and, and even many of our churches even where the pastor doesn't say we're Calvinist, we have a church nearby where the pastor's son was driving and they went off the road and tragically the pastor was killed. And if this happened at a thousand churches where they don't say they're Calvinist, they will ask, why did God do this? Why was this God's will? And and that is really increasingly it's the default position and I think, sadly, it's a humanist position going back to Plato and more a superstitious position. It's almost like reading chicken entrails and tea leaves to see, okay, this happened. Now, what does this tell us about God's will? But so it right. seems that it's so prevalent. But here in Denver, the seminary, they asked their students to debate this issue. And so two of them came to us here at Bob and Yurt Live and said, can we borrow the Bible you used at the debate with James White at the Brown Palace when you flip through the four Gospels, and literally there are thousands of verses highlighted in yellow that are the biblical attributes of showing that God is a person, and that he's living, and he's relational, and he's good and loving. And then we highlight it in green, the more traditional attributes of omnipotence and omniscience and omnipresence and immutability and impassibility. And we had four verses, only four highlighted in green. And so they used this Bible uh, in their presentation just two weeks ago. And it, it was pretty interesting to see how when they looked at 
these issues from another perspective. They saw they saw so much in the Bible that they had not seen before. Right, and we've got to be real careful as theologians, as I, I know you know, to be careful not to play one verse just against another to say, hey, let's just volley with our proof text, but instead understand that obviously the inspired word is a cohesive, very uh, non-contradictory teaching. And, and, and just because a passage may look like it contradicts another passage doesn't mean that it necessarily does, and that mm. we should understand holistically what the authors of Scripture are trying to depict about who God is. Mm. And obviously there are some mysterious things about an infinite being. Right. Um, there are some things we're not going to be able to put our, our minds around. Of if course. we could, then he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be infinite by very definition. And so, yes, there are some appeals to mystery, but an appeal to mystery is different than a contradiction. And I think that's where our Calvinistic brothers have stepped into and over the line, into ultimately contradicting, I think, what the Scriptures teach, and uh, even their own their, themselves in some situations, like we talked about in our, our former interview. When your view changed, did you experience any pushback in your professional career? You know, I would happen to be in a place when I moved from the church that I was in, I was at a Reformed church. I, it was a church that split off my home church in Wiley. Uh, it's a church that's still there, um, and it's a founder's church, uh, founders referencing to Southern Baptist Convention, and uh, that ministry is very Calvinistic, and I helped to, to be a part of the, the starting of that church. My, my family did, and, um, and so uh, we ended up leaving that church about the same time I was coming out of Calvinism, and that's when I started working for Texas Baptist. Who, um, who have always been a little bit more open to and leaning against the Calvinistic perspective. And so I was blessed to be in a situation where, where I, was, I, I was able to be really uh, mm. truthful about my doubts with regard to Calvinism. About the same time I was kind of, my studies were leading me out of Calvinism, it was the same time I was offered that position and stepped into that role. So well, and as uh, the, that, that was beneficial. As the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptists, it helps if you're an evangelist to believe that God actually loves the person that you're talking to. That just helps. Instead right. of... Well, our, our theology will drive our methodology. Mm. And so if we believe that God loves all people and desires all to be saved, then we're more likely to persist in trying to persuade all people to be saved. Yes. And that's one of the things I really try to emphasize with the, with the concept of apologetics. That is the doctrine of persuasion. We're doing like Paul does in Acts 28, verse 23 and following, where he tries to persuade them all day long using the law of Moses. And the mm. prophets, some were convinced and some would not believe. And, and he goes on to describe why some would not believe in that very passage. Mm. And I think it's interesting. He does not blame it upon the eternal decree of God. He doesn't say it's because of an inherited nature of Adam. He says it's because they close their eyes, because they, their hearts have become calloused. Otherwise, they might see here uh, turn and he would heal them. And therefore, he takes the message to the Gentiles, because the Jews of that day had become hardened and calloused in the rebellion. Mm. And interestingly, that's really one of the major points that led me out of Calvinism. Once I understood the context of Israel's hardening, where they had become calloused, uh, they weren't born already calloused, they weren't born already uh, with their eyes already closed, like some ontological reality from birth decreed by God, but this is because of their self-righteous rebellion against God that they grew into mm. that hardened condition and were eventually cut off because of their unbelief. Once I realized that, then there was really no reason to hold on to my Calvinism. 
So when you go to a college campus, a high school campus, we have a hundred times to share the gospel. And if you say, God might love you, God might have a plan for your life. (laughs) There's something missing there. We go to the abortion mill. In fact, we've had over 1,000 babies saved now at our local abortion mill, Planned Parenthood. Confirmed saves where the mom has thanked us for being there. And often, of course, we try to reach the mom and the dad with the gospel. But there are people who go there, Christians, to protest who are Calvinists, and they believe that it's God's will that these babies are dismembered. And it's God's will that abortion is legal. And they're so caught in turmoil, the tension between their theology and what they're desperately trying to stop. Well, and, and some Calvinists wouldn't want to word it that way. Um, the ones that know better or know how to defend themselves would, would refer to what they call the two wills of God. And this is often a strategy that Calvinists use, is that they, if, if they can't explain something, they'll kind of create yeah, two of them. Yeah, but so before you ty- say that, Dr. Flowers, before you say that, don't they say that God is simple? The simplicity of God, <laughs> one of their fundamental doctrines— that there's nothing different within him at all. His knowledge is his power, is his presence, is his righteousness, is his very existence. So now he has two different wills. Yeah, it, it can become very uh, complex. Now, the systematic itself is very flat. It's very, I mean, determinism is not a real difficult thing. We, we're just, you know, God wrote, wrote the script. Uh, we are doing exactly what he has decreed, scripted for us to do. That's a very flat doctrine. Hmm. But trying to explain it uh, in light of Scripture can become very convoluted at times, especially when it comes to the wills of God, because what you'll have is what what James White and others call the prescriptive will, which is the external will of God. This is what he prescribes or he says out loud that he wants. But then there's the hidden or the sovereign will of God, and that sometimes can be in direct uh, contradiction to what he has revealed. Yeah, obviously, right, obviously God likes divorce more than he likes faithfulness, and he likes pornography way more than he likes Bible teaching, and he likes unbelief and hatred and blasphemy way more than humility and worship, because your actions speak louder than your words, and if God has filled this world with all its wickedness— then that would tell us more than any particular Bible verse what he's really like. Well, and of course, on the Calvinistic side, they would never say no. God likes pornography, obviously. But right. what you're, I think the point you're making is that because there's so much more pornography than there is Bible study, it must be that God has, quote-unquote, sovereignly, or de- he's sovereignly decreed, or he has secretly willed it right. more oftentimes than he's willed Bible study. And that's, and that's where the problem lies, is that ultimately you've got God controlling and or decreeing and or causing and or bringing to pass more pornography than a Bible study, and, and why would God do that if, if it truly does desire for us to study His Word mm. and to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through His inspired text? It makes sense that if He's the one ultimately controlling that, and that's what He really wants, that He would somehow sovereignly bring that to pass through, you know, causal, determinative means and that don't somehow doesn't violate our will either. Right, and um, I do understand, of course, when I present these logical conclusions of Calvinism that Calvinists object. I I understand that. Interestingly, James White, who you and I have both debated, uh, leading Calvinist, was on the Bible Answer Man nationwide 
and he was challenged with the question, if a man rapes a child, was that an eternal decree of God that the man would rape the child? James White tried to not answer the question two or three times, and the Bible answer man, and if I had pressed him, he wouldn't answer, he wouldn't be truthful, because he thinks he could get away with it on my show or in a debate with me, but because he's on Nationwide on the radio, he was pressed, was this God's decree? Did God decree this man to rape this child? And he said yes. And so it was interesting how he tried to get away from answering some, the logical conclusions of Calvinism is what their leaders believe. They do believe these things. And I, well, I, interestingly, I played that broadcast on my podcast, and I also played it in its full um, its fullness. And then I also played James White's follow up broadcast on his own dividing line because he was accusing everyone of taking it out of context and right. important understanding right. and all those kinds of things. So I wanted to make sure everybody heard everything he said yes. on the subject. Right. And so I played it all. But ultimately, his, 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 his argument is, is if God didn't decree rape, then it's purposeless evil. In other words, God doesn't have a purpose in it. Yeah. And, and, I, and my argument would be that's correct. The purpose is evil. That's why it's, it's an evil thing. Well, well the purpose— that God's purpose is yeah. redeeming evil. He's, he doesn't cause evil for a good purpose. No. He redeems evil for a good purpose. It'd be like, it'd be like if somebody in your church came and said your transmission went out— I, you know, I could fix that for you, and you're so thankful. And then you find out they poured sand in it to break it so they could fix it for you. You right, think, right. you're mentally ill. There's something wrong with you. <laughs> so, the, yeah. so the purpose is love, because love has to be freely given. If there isn't freedom, there cannot be love. And so to love, you require the ability to hate. And, and right. God wants there to be love, and that's why, that's why also we have people and angels fallen who hate right yep there I, I think for real relationship that's worth having there has to be the ability to choose to follow or to not mm. follow uh and and that i think that's why we have the garden uh, the tree in the garden that's why you have the prodigal son story where why does he give the inheritance well i think the reason he gives it the inheritance is because if, if, the, if the guy wants to try to be his own god uh, then let him go try, because it's only in that uh, that experience that he's going to realize how much he needs the Father. Um, and and I think that's what God is teaching us by by giving us the tree. He's giving us the choice, and I, I think that's a vital part of our theodicy, the problem of evil, and it's a it's a vital part of theology and the character of God as well. Doctor Flowers, we're speaking with Doctor Leighton Flowers, who's the author of The Potter's Promise: A Biblical Defense of traditional soteriology, that is the teaching of salvation, and also the host of Soteriology 101, Dr. Flowers, I don't know if you've heard of a Calvinist Dr. Larry Bray. He is the president of TNARS, the North American Reform Seminary. He and I had a five-round written debate on Calvinism, and I had the opportunity to post first. It was a pretty brief debate. And I led, I'd love, love to tell you with what I led with. I led with the Calvinist heavy artillery. You did not choose me, but I chose you. God knows the end from the beginning. All my days were written before there was yet one of them. In Romans 9, along with Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that debate, we... 
say before a debate that whoever promotes the debate is likely the person who thinks that he won. And so, like with the James White debate on our YouTube page, we have double the number of views that he has on his YouTube page because we promote it, we sell it on DVD, on Blu-ray. This debate with Dr. Bray, it went so well for the position that God is eternally free and he made us as free will agents. And so their heavy artillery, so often, if you just look at it carefully, it's easy to take something, rip it out of context, but when you see it in context, often it's a strong affirmation of the truth of the freedom of God and of his creatures. That's correct. I, I think when you look at any of the passages that seem to contradict another passage, it just it's just a matter of context. You understand the context, you can understand the meaning of the author in that context. Mm. Jacob I loved and Esau I hate it. When Jesus says, you can't love me unless you hate your mother and father. I mean, is that right. what he wants us to do? He wants us to hate our parents? Of course not. Honor your mother and father. And you love one another. So there's a Hebrew idiom, which means to love and to love more, actually. When that goes right back to the babies in the womb, and Rachel and Leah, and Jacob, he loved Rachel and hated Leah. It's not that he hated her. He buried her in the family tomb. He didn't do that with Rachel. But it's a Hebrew idiom. So you love your parents. It doesn't mean you hate them in any way whatsoever. But you love your parents, but your love for God is, it's different, and it's more significant for incredibly important reasons. So God gave a covenant to Jacob that he didn't give to Esau. It doesn't mean that he hates babies. Correct. Well, and we know that because of what uh, Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 4, because he actually talks about the two mothers, referring back to Sarah and Hagar, because Hagar was representative of slavery, because she was the, the means by which Abraham tried to pursue the law. In other words, he was trying to pursue works. He, he didn't wait on the promise. He didn't have faith, and he thought he had to make a son himself. Right. And so he didn't, instead of waiting on the promise, he tries to work. And that's what she he even says. This is not literal, it's figurative, that Hagar and Ishmael represent works, mm. whereas Isaac, under Sarah, represents faith if you wait on God. And so the whole dynamic of Romans chapter 9 is not monergism versus synergism or Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's faith versus works. And in general, the two nations, Israel's trying to work for their salvation, and the Gentiles are pursuing it by faith, and they're attaining it. So that's the dichotomy that's being set up by by Paul in Romans 9 from the very beginning verses to the very end in his own conclusion. And, And, uh, and, And it never supports Calvinism whatsoever. And when Paul quotes Genesis with these two babies in the womb, that chapter in Genesis, God says, there are two nations in your womb. In other words, they're the progenitors, the patriarchs of then their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, two nations, and this is God calling one nation because he has the freedom, because God is free, he can call one nation to be his people, his spokes nation to the world, and through whom the Messiah would come. And then if that nation rejects the resurrected Messiah, then he also has the freedom to call the Gentiles who do not have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews in order to come to the Lord for salvation. That's right. Well, and, and also, I think it's really important to, to, to understand that when 
we talk about God electing or choosing, you have to ask, who is he choosing and for what? Mm. And so, okay, so we can say, and a lot of times people say, well, this corporate view and nations, well, nations are made up of individuals. I used to say that all the time when I was a Calvinist, trying to rebuke the corporate view. Um, but I always point out, okay, fine, let's talk about the individuals. What was Jacob chosen for? He was chosen to be the head of the nation of Israel through whom the lineage of Christ would come. Mm. In other words, the Messiah and his message would come through Jacob, not Esau. Does that mean that Jacob was effectually chosen to be saved? No, of course not. And Esau was effectually chosen to be damned? Right, of no, course not. It's, it's about, right, it's about the nation being chosen for a purpose. And Dr. And Flowers, this whole chosen is not what it's cracked up to be. We see the chosen priest where Aaron's four sons, they were chosen to serve God forever, the Bible says, but then two of them disobeyed and were killed by God. We see God's chosen. He chose two Saul's, both of the tribe of Benjamin, and the first who he put on the throne in Israel, God says that his descendants, that throne could have been in the tribe of Benjamin and of Saul's lineage forever, but God repented that he made Saul king, and he took him off the throne, and he gave that throne to someone else. The chosen priest, for the most part, seem to have been in rebellion against God, even some of the chosen prophets, and ultimately the chosen people themselves, the vast majority turned against God. So chosen, God selected people for a purpose, but it doesn't mean he forced them to love him, which is an oxymoron. Right. Well, and also demonstrating that God has chosen messengers to ensure that his message is delivered doesn't prove that God has ensured who will and won't believe that message. I think that's really important to understand. Yes, God ensured that Jonah goes to Nineveh, and he uses a big fish to make sure that he does so. Yeah. That doesn't prove that God pre-selected which Ninevites would or wouldn't believe Jonah's message when he got there. Right. And Calvinists do this throughout the entire context of the Scriptures, where they're taking places where God obviously chose his servants and his messengers, and he even ensures through signs and wonders, through envy, through whatever means he has, to, to ensure that his, his message is delivered. But that doesn't prove God decides who will and won't believe their message when, when they arrive. Well, in saying this with love toward our Calvinist brothers and sisters, like you're known for doing that, Dr. Flowers, and thank you for that example. But Jonah was like the Calvinist theologian because he was angry that the power and the knowledge and the prophecy didn't prevail. God said, you know, there are people there. I love those people. So Paul, when he defines love in writing to the Corinthians, he said, if I have all knowledge and if I have all prophecy, but don't have love, I am nothing. And when God gives his prophecies of destruction, they're warnings with the hope that they don't come to pass, that people will heed the prophecy as in Nineveh, 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed, and then it was not because God loved them, and they repented, and God repented of the destruction that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Well, I think it's interesting also you bring up 1 Corinthians 13, because he also says you can give everything you have to the poor. In other words, benevolence, but you have not love, you have nothing. Mm. That proves that you can't call uh, giving rain and sunshine, you can't call that love, because some lower Calvinists, like John MacArthur, attempt to try to defend, you hear D.A. Carson do this in his book as well, um, try to defend saying God does love all people, even the non-elect, um, but you can't call that love just because he provides rain and sunshine or this common mm. uh, grace to them. 
that's not love by Paul's definition under inspiration. And therefore, I think that's, a, that's a, a, again, one of those vocabulary what a words great, that's often yes. used differently by Calvin. Different dictionary. So we are out yep. of time. There's the closing music. Dr. Layton Flowers, thank you so very much. What an honor it is to talk with you. Thank you for having me, brother. You're welcome. The host of Soteriology 101. We'll link to that from our website, kgov, kgov.com. May God bless you. Have you heard of the plot manuscript? It's 330 pages, an overview of the entire Bible. People who have read it have said it's helped them understand and enjoy the Word of God. Hi, this is Bob Enyar. I wrote the plot years ago. We sell it at a money-back guarantee, $49.95 plus shipping and handling. And if you don't feel that you really understand the Bible now, we want to give you your money back. So go online to order it at kgov, K-G-O-V dot com, or call us at 800-8-N-Y-A-R-T. That's 1-800-836-9278.